This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. First of all, Jamal, Eid Mubarak to our viewers and listeners and to the one and a half billion Muslims celebrating the end of Ramadan and the Eid celebration. It's a joyous and awesome time right now for the one and a half billion Muslims of the world. And we send our Eid blessings to uh, Muslims everywhere who are celebrating. But we have a great show. In addition to it being the Eid, <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of so much news right now, Jamal. I mean, the Russian invasion, occupation, and destruction of Ukraine occurs and is occurring unabated. It's brutal. The media representations continue to be, to put it mildly, skewed and um, not very objective. We'll be talking a little bit about that, but we'll we'll also talk about a recent incident that's being played up in the media here, where Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, uh, claimed that uh, that Adolf Hitler had quote Jewish blood in his heritage, and uh, in a response to a question from an Italian journalist about the Russian claim of denazifying uh, Ukraine, we're going to talk about that, break it down a little bit and uh, continue to kind of look at the media coverage of this uh, devastating uh, war and occupation in Ukraine. And as part of that discussion, we're going to talk a little bit about the increased funding that is being, you know, sought after by President Biden to give even, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of more dollars. Well, to be specific, $33 billion. Yeah, yeah. But you know, we're facing kind of an ugly truth, which we're going to talk about on the other side, Jamal, which is, you know, irrespective of what people think, this is turning out to be a proxy war of NATO, including the United States against Russia. This is not Ukraine versus Russia. This is a much bigger kind of engagement. We'll talk about that on the other end. But first, we're going to look at an interview, a really, really excellent interview that she did with Suhad uh, Baba. She did a film. It'll be premiering this Sunday in San Rafael in Northern California. It's called Boycott. It chronicles uh, three everyday Americans challenging anti-BDS laws for their constitutionality in a nationwide First Amendment battle likely to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's going to be playing at the San Rafael Film Festival this Sunday. But you you did quite an excellent uh, interview with uh, Sahad. And, uh, you know, it's very compelling. It's part of the Ducklands at uh, Smith, uh, Smith uh, Rafael Film Center. Um, that's going to be uh, happening this, this Sunday. And then we are also going to talk about a topic that we talk about it all the time, which is BDS and, and the effect of BDS and why there is such resistance and panic that politicians and lawmakers are willing to violate uh, Americans' First Amendment uh, just to uh, basically cover up for uh, Israeli apartheid and, and, and crimes. That's exactly right, Jamal. So um, let's, let's watch this really great interview and then we'll come back on the other side to discuss that. In the wake of support for boycott, divestment, and sanction, or BDS, peaceful tactics to hold Israel accountable for human rights violations, 33 states have passed laws to silence boycott or any other 
peaceful measures critical of Israel by conditioning jobs and other state benefits on individuals signing a pledge not to support them. The anti-boycott legislation has met a counterwave in defense of freedom of speech. The documentary Boycott chronicles three everyday Americans challenging these laws for their constitutionality in a nationwide First Amendment battle likely to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Suhad Baba is a producer and news publisher and the executive director of Just Vision, which produced Boycott. Just Vision is an organization that fills media gap on Israel-Palestine through independent storytelling and strategic uh, audience engagement. Welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Suhad. Jamal, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. So let's uh, first tell us a little bit about uh, Just Vision, when when it was founded and why. That's a great question. Um, I have the good fortune of leading a team of filmmakers, of journalists, and human rights advocates. We're Palestinian, we're Israeli, and we're North and South American. And in 2003, we emerged to help fill a gap in the way that stories about Israel and Palestine, from Israel and Palestine, are being captured both in the nightly news and the mainstream media, and also in the way that um, communities oftentimes hear about what's happening in Israel Palestine through political narratives. Um, it was our belief that um, that there were courageous people, communities at the grassroots who were working for freedom, for rights, for dignity, um, and that it would be important to put a spotlight on those efforts so that people knew about them and that um, audiences could grapple with the reality and what is actually happening on the ground, but also the courageous efforts to shift that reality. Um, and so for many years, um, we've been producing both documentary films and more recently journalistic work. Um, and we couple um, our media development with educational and outreach efforts here in the United States, as well as in Israel-Palestine. That's great. Sounds great. So what was the inspiration for making a boycott? You know, if for those of you who are familiar with our previous body of work, you, you may know that um, our previous films, um, Budrus, My Neighborhood, Naila and the Uprising, all are stories about Palestinians and Israelis in the region, in Israel-Palestine, um, of people who have been standing up and driving grassroots movements um, to create change. We are also interested as an organization around efforts to silence those voices. Um, and oftentimes um, we've seen the Israeli governments and other political actors um, working to repress voices of dissent. When we started to see efforts of repression reaching um, the United States and Europe and really being mirrored across the globe, we said, wait a second, we really need to broaden our aperture and follow that story. And so back in 2014, when we first started to hear about the anti-boycott bills here in the United States, we began to follow closely what those efforts looked like. And when the first plaintiffs emerged, um, in places like Kansas, in Arizona, in Texas, in Arkansas and beyond to challenge the constitutionality of those laws together with the ACLU, we said, wait a second, now we have a story. Um, and so that's why we decided to tell that story. Um, for us, it's really twofold. It's um, bringing to attention what's, what's happening um, 
to silence those who are advocating for Palestinian rights, um, which is a wider trend um, happening across the country and around the globe currently in ver- through various legislative and legal mechanisms. Um, but we also believed very deeply that these anti-boycott laws pose a threat for free speech and freedom of expression across the board, that it's really a template in a Pandora's box. Yeah, so uh, I noticed like from your storytelling, at least from the synopsis uh, of the film, uh, of, of course, we, we spoke uh, a little bit about that, that you follow the story of, of three different different stories. But one uh, in particular that, that caught my attention is someone, uh, a publisher, publication, uh, that really, uh, as you can maybe say, they had uh, no horse in the race. They couldn't care less about what's going on in Palestine and Israel, but then this kind of grabbed their attention because of the First Amendment. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, Alan Leverett is one of the amazing plaintiffs and protagonists that we had the chance to come to know throughout the making of Boycott. Um, he is the news publisher and the publisher of the Arkansas Times, which is an independent um, news outfit in Arkansas. Um, it's largely, it's its primary revenue streams include selling advertisements to local institutions. So your universities, your hospitals, and so forth that are oftentimes state funded. Um, Arkansas passed the anti-boycott law many years ago. And the Arkansas Times, um, as usual, sold its advertising space to local universities. Um, And in one case, they actually went out, they went and invoiced that local university to make a payment um, for the advertising space that they purchased. And the university came back and said, we can't pay you until you sign this pledge that says that the Arkansas Times does not engage in boycotts of the state of Israel. And um, exactly as you said, Jamal, Allen was baffled. Um, you know, he's really covering, as he would say, what's what's happening, you know, in Arkansas, um, not what's happening in Israel-Palestine. He's concerned about Medicare and Medicaid. He's concerned about what's happening at the local barbecue spot. Um, and so when he was uh forced to sign this contract, he said, no, I won't do that. And instead he filed suit um, as a newsman, as a journalist who said, look, um, my primary role as a journalist is to maintain free speech and freedom of expression. And there's no way um, that I'm going to take a position on this issue. I mean, do you, do you feel that, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm glad you're making this documentary and I hope millions of people uh, see it but i mean do you feel that americans in general are aware that their first amendment is threatened by by something like this i mean today you know you're talking about palestine and israel tomorrow like you know hey maybe i want to boycott uh, eating at mcdonald's and then they'll come after me that's a great question one of our theories is that part of the reason that these anti-boycott bills have been able to spread so quickly. Today, there are, as you said earlier, 33 states in America that have anti-boycott bills on the books. The reason in our belief that they're able to spread is because there's been little to no public scrutiny. As you mentioned, the threat to our First Amendment rights, to our right to boycott, to our right to protest is on the line here. And as we've been um, touring the country, people time and time again, audiences are surprised. They're mm-hmm. shocked to hear about these laws on the books. And that's it's, that's part of the reason that we made this film is to sound the alarm, 
to say, hey, this is going on and it deserves a public conversation. We should all be paying attention to this. The lawmakers supporting the anti-bycott legislation are also featured. Does this strengthen the story? In my view, of course it does. You know, what is happening today, and I think it's a really important thing to be paying attention to, these anti-boycott bills originally passed in many of these states with wide bipartisan support. Um, And what you come to learn in the film is that when it came to any bill regarding Israel, people provided a rubber stamp on that bill, so long as it was a good Um, bill in support of the state of Israel without really reviewing what those bills meant or what have you in the case of the Democrat, Greg Letting, who you you meet in the film. And and for us, it's really important to illuminate um, that we have to hold our political leaders to account um, and, and put pressure on them and make sure that they're educated about what these laws are. Um, and why they shouldn't be voting for them. Fast forward now, several years, you know, we're now in 2022. Not only are these bills um, targeting those who are concerned for Palestinian rights, they've now been expanded. Mm-hmm. Um, and without giving away too much of the story, um, you know, they have taken roots as anti-boycott bills vis-a-vis fossil fuels, as well as anti-boycott bills vis-a-vis firearms, where um, those who companies who are choosing to boycott the fossil fuels industry or the ammunitions industry are now being punished by the state that they're in um, for making that ethical decision. Um, Really, at the end of the day, what is this? This is an attack on our very right to organize and to really um, utilize the different channels of pressure that we have as ordinary citizens um, on companies and governments Um, to be doing the right thing. What was the biggest challenge in pulling the stories uh, together or pulling the stories, I should say, together? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Boycott, I think for us, one, it's it's geographically diverse. So we were shooting in multiple locations across the country, um, which was both a lot of fun and it meant that we were traveling quite a bit, um, but we got to see a lot of the United States. I think the other piece was really, you know, the the piece about trying to create a film during the midst of in the midst of a pandemic um, poses challenges um, and also forced us to get really creative and and really look at our material differently as we were in the edit room. Um, And I think the biggest piece for us was really um, continuing to follow the story over several years. As, as you know, Jamal, the film has an investigative component where we're really asking the question, how did these laws come into being right. um, and, and who's behind them? And, and so staying on the ball and, and staying determined in the midst of a pandemic um, and multiple threads that were unfolding in real time was important and um, posed challenges, but also is part of the reason that we loved making this film in the first place. How uh, has it been received? Uh, What are some of the most common responses uh, that you've seen in the film, whether um, through your Q&A or um, just meeting afterwards with people who watch the film? The overwhelming response that we've received is just shock that this is happening. Um, Most people don't know about this story. And when they do, they're very concerned um, to hear that there are laws that are taking away our right to boycott in the United States, a country that was founded on a mythology of boycotting British tea, right? And um, and so 
the that has been really heartening for us because for us we believe that it's in the public interest knowledge is power and by being educated about these laws and how they're unfolding people have the opportunity to get involved and to engage differently um Overwhelmingly, we've also had very positive responses from press, from journalists who have been picking up the story, the New York Times, um, Christiane Amanpour, um, uh, editor and publisher of a trade magazine for all editors and publishers across the country. And so we hope to keep um, raising the visibility of the story. We hope to keep meeting audiences around the country. We launched in November 2021 in New York City at Doc NYC. Since then, we've been to Texas at South by Southwest, Arizona at the Sedona International Film Festival. We were just at Hot Docs in Canada this weekend, um, and we're really excited about coming to California um, in about a week. Just taking, I'm going to take you back to the, the you know, I'm curious about these lawmakers or politicians. Uh, I mean, usually with uh, my meetings uh, with uh, politicians uh, as a journalist, uh, there is also behind the scene what they will say on camera and off camera. Because uh, the First Amendment, I mean, it must bother them that this is being violated. I mean, if you're a lawmaker in the United States, you swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and that's really an attack on the Constitution. I mean, we hear politicians defending the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. And when it comes to the First Amendment, they're quite silent about it. The reality that we're seeing is that this has taken root across the country. And I, and I think exactly to your, you know, your surprise, Jamal, um, part of the reason that we created this film is to make sure that we're able to confront uh, legislators about this, um, that we're able to engage policymakers who are doing the right thing to help create more space for them to be able to vote in ways that are meaningful and that stand up for the First Amendment. Um, and I think that part of the, the issue that we're seeing today is, is and, and part of the reason we wanted to make this story is when we know that political leaders or political the political establishment is not working the way it ought to be, um, it's really up to civilians and citizens to hold those leaders to account. It's also, you know, it's also been really heartening in the conversations that I've had with state legislate legislators across the country in several different states, some of whom have courageously said no, despite the political backlash um, that comes with it, um, some of whom um, voted yes and in retrospect have said, wait a second, I really shouldn't have done that and have had a change of heart. Um, and sure, some who are digging their heels in. Um, I believe, though, that um, we have a lot of opportunity to change that conversation. You know, I, one of the people that we came to know quite well through the making of the film is Mick Jordahl. Um, and Mick Jordahl um, is a protagonist in Arizona um, who was also a plaintiff um, who worked with the ACLU to challenge the local law in Arizona. Um, he actually started to organize with a group of intersectional, um, it was an intersectional coalition of racial justice advocates, um, folks who are working on um, immigrant rights and with undocumented communities, others who are working on environments and climate justice. Um, and through six months of organizing, they were able to move 21 of the original 26 Democrats who voted yes for this bill to no, no votes. And so um, we hope that this story can inspire others um, to look to different models like that one about what happens when we organize um, 
and show up um, in 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 the halls of power. Uh, Baikat duck uh, is shown at Ducklands uh, in at the Smith uh, Raphael Film Center this Sunday, May eighth at four p.m. There is also a, a Q and A after with uh, Suhad Baba. Uh, you can buy your tickets, uh, I guess, people uh, online or just come to, to the theater. Uh, where else can people see it if they, uh, they are not close to Sarafal? That's a great question. So we are currently in the film festival circuit. Um, we have a number of screenings upcoming. California being one, we'll be in Minnesota um, in a couple of weeks. Um, we are also planning on launching our community and educational campaign with the film where we'll be uh, reaching and, and seeking to screen on university campuses, college campuses, um, in community centers, congregations, um, your homes and living rooms coming um, this fall. Um, so if you're interested in arranging a screening as well, you're most welcome to reach out um, to info at justvision.org um, to set up those screenings. Otherwise, check us out at www.justvision.org. Um, visit our events page where we're keeping po- keeping updated um, when we'll be screening and where that will be. Um, and we do hope to have broader distribution um, by spring 2023. So, Baba, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much, Jamal, for having me. That's the voice and the face of Sahad Baba, a documentary filmmaker. Her film, Boycott, is going to be premiering this Sunday, uh, May 8th, uh, at the Rafael Film Festival or the Doc, Doc Ends Film Festival at the San Rafael Theater. We'll post all that information. I know, Jamal, you'll post all that information on, on the Facebook page and our website so that people can go in and listen. That's That's a very... Incredible interview. We we all look forward to the um, the actual documentary. But here's the crazy irony that you and I have been discussing for years now, which is, you have Republicans and Democrats screaming at the top of their lungs about First Amendment rights. You know, people being able to you know talk about stolen elections and and you know white supremacists being able to say whatever they want. Yet, when pro-Palestine activists engage in BDS, which is a, you know, a nonviolent uh, First Amendment protected. Well, just just I'm going to interrupt you here, because when you say BDS, I just want to make sure the boycott, you define the boycott uh, and and sanctions part, because as you're talking about this, the United States is engaged in the very same thing with Russia. Absolutely. I mean, it's boycotting (laughs) Russia. It's boycotting Russian goods. Yeah. And and guess what? Texas, I mean, is 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 engaged in a you know, and many states are engaged in this battle about punishing people who choose to boycott or sanction Israeli products or buy Israeli bonds and things like that. You have Texas and numerous other states threatening to fire teachers, threatening to issue doing all this crazy stuff because of people's constitutional right to be able to uh, engage in these activities. And uh, the interview was very compelling, Jamal. So uh, my question to you, Jess, is how do politicians reconcile that we are now asking the American public and actually internationally, we're asking our allies, we're asking Canada, we're asking NATO members to boycott, to divest, to sanction Russian 
goods and services globally because of it, its invasion of and Ukraine occupation. and occupation yeah. of Ukraine. And at the same time, we punish people who choose to exercise their First Amendment in this country and boycott Israeli goods. There's an easy answer to that, Jamal. The easy answer to that is that politicians don't reconcile, they lie. And this is part of the, uh, you know, the the kind of classic and, you know, we, we could talk about politicians lying on, on the, the whole spectrum of the political, uh, you know, spectrum from left to right to middle to, to whatever. But it seems like Republicans have a special penchant for lying. And when it about this very issue. It's okay to boycott Russia, but it's not okay to boycott Israel when when basically both Russia and the Israeli apartheid regime are engaging in a brutal kind of occupation. And, and some people might say war against the indigenous people of historic Palestine. So well, think, think about it also this way. Uh, we know Russia violates human rights. It has violated human rights uh, for several decades. But it's not on the list of apartheid countries. There is only one no. apartheid country in the world, and that is Israel, certified right. as an apartheid regime by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch, by the United Nations, by its own human rights organization, B'Tselem, and many others. <laughs> and yet, it's the one country that politicians are willing not even to debate it. How many times have you heard politicians in our Congress uh, debate the Second Amendment about firearms and so forth. But they, I mean, is that well, more important than the First Amendment? No, Jamal, just, just a small point of clarification. People are screaming at the top of their lungs about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment right now, especially Republicans on the, uh, on the right. They're screaming about, you know, Elon Musk in a, in a positive way, because they want Elon Musk to be able to buy Twitter, for example, to allow Donald Trump to get back on in other white supremacists so that they can spew uh, this kind of hateful rhetoric. And that's protected and they're and they're pushing for it. And you're exactly right. And that's why this discussion is so important. The hypocrisy, the, the kind of lies that uh, these politicians... I was waiting for you to, see, to say that word, because I was going to say that's the one word we, we haven't used yet, the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy and lies. I mean, and, and, and listen, I think it's important to, to, to not single out the Republicans, but because Democrats, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and the whole spectrum, except for a handful of Democrats, the progressive Democratic, uh, wing of the party. They're also engaged in this anti-BDS uh, rhetoric and wanting to attack people and uh, institutions that engage in, in BDS activity. So I think, you know, when it comes to this, this is the single issue within the American political structure and narrative where you have equal opportunity hypocrisy, Jamal, between Republicans and Democrats condemning the BDS. And I think it's important also, I just want to throw this in there since we talked about it last week and the week before, the Harvard Crim Crimson, That's which right. is the, the newspaper of the, you know, the student newspaper in Harvard, published an editorial two days ago celebrating their committed stand in support of Palestinian sovereignty, self-determination, and the BDS movement. This is Harvard, Jamal, you know, the, the place where one of the 
you know, greatest um, kind of degenerate political minds of our era, uh, Alan Dershowitz, who has been pummeling, you know, uh, BDS activists for years now. The Harvard Crimson, in addition to the Harvard Law Review, has come out unambiguously in not only saying Israel is an apartheid state, but also in their support of Palestinian self-determination. So I'm sure Alan Dershowitz is sweating bullets right now, but there there needs to be condemnation of both Democrats and Republicans on this hypocrisy, Jamal. Well, I have also news, and I'm sure you know that. It's not news to you, but to our audience. So the Crimson, the Harvard Crimson, came under severe attack, severe attack for publishing this editorial that its uh, editor-in-chief or, or the chair of, of the editorial board came out and uh, wrote something on Twitter defending the position of the board. And then she started her sentence by saying that, I'm Jewish and I'm the, I'm the chair or I'm the editor-in-chief and this is a collective finding of all the editorial board after you know, uh, study and research, etc. Uh, that uh, the only thing that you can take against Israel these days, because of its position, because of its apartheid practices, etc., is to buy boycotting it, and that's why we endorsed BDS. Because you know, you know, when I'm talking about this, you know, usually what is the traditional. Uh, attack that comes by Zionist organizations. Well, it's anti-Semitic. You know, right? Anti-Semitism. So she wanted to kind of pour some cold water on their attack, even though that's not going to stop them from then, then, then they move on to accusing, sadly, uh, Jewish students and Jewish professors, etc., as being self-hating, right? So the first thing right. they go into, right. you're an anti-Semite, and then she wanted to put the brakes on that and said, hey, I'm Jewish, and, and wait a minute, and then, of course... I, but I don't you're think- right, Jamal, it's not going to stop the attack. She will be attacked, the Harvard Crimson will be attacked, I'm just waiting for Alan Dershowitz to to write or to say something really outlandish. But the reality is, Jamal, and this, this kind of gets to the point, is that this is why the apartheid regime and pro-Israel activists and advocates are sweating right now, Jamal, because you have almost universal condemnation of Israel as an apartheid uh, uh, state. You have universal condemnation of their practices of occupation of indigenous Palestinians. And now you have almost universal support for the BDS movement outside of the bubble of uh, J Street and APAC and uh, pro-Israel activists. There isn't a single place within the sphere of intellectual honesty that doesn't have or hasn't had the the you know the the courage to to say Israel is an apartheid state and they need to be boycotted. This is clear and unambiguous globally and nationally, except here in the United States. Well, that's why that's why the documentary uh, boycott is very timely, and I yes. um, urge our listeners and viewers to go and and see it. We'll put the website. Uh, you know, where you can see it, because I know it's going to be in the Bay Area and it's going to different states and so forth, so people can follow the schedule uh, for it. 
But, you know, it's very timely. Uh, I just wanted to reflect quickly, and this is part of my conversation with Suhad, uh, Jess. Uh, they followed uh, th- three different stories, basically, uh, who, uh, of individuals who, who faced uh, this campaign to silence them and have them sign, a, uh, sign on, basically, documents saying that they, they, are, they, will, they are against uh, BDS, basically, and they refused. Right. And one of that stood to mind, because we know like they've done that in the past to, to Arab American and Muslim American uh, employees and, and teachers and, and so forth. Uh, uh, but this one is like the story of, because, you know, we're interested in journalism because of our show. This is uh, this is one one was who was a journalist, basically, right. publisher publisher of a local uh, right. a, a newspaper who right. had just no skin in the game. I mean, right. he, he just like, his issue wasn't about Palestine, Israel. It's it's more like local news, like just, right. they focus on their local news. And then uh, when he published, uh, uh, I think he had a, uh, a bill that's going to the state university or something like this. And then when he received that, he had to sign on this commitment saying that, then he had to read it very clearly. Then said, why do I have to sign on something like almost a promissory note saying that I will not be engaged in BDS if I want to get paid? I mean, it's like he it's was crazy. like shocked and then got really involved in it. And so anyway, I don't want to give give up the whole story right. uh, of the film, but this is just this is the crazy thing that Americans are not aware of. I mean, just kind of like this violation. Imagine this is just one thing. Imagine if you decide to say publicly, I want to boycott Starbucks or I want to boycott McDonald's or I want to uh, not shop at this store or that it's store. It's happening and then, every day. And then you receive a note, you know, right. telling you that you have to sign something promising that you're not going to do that. I have the answer to that, Jamal. Think of a Democrat or Republican or any American, as you said, who says they can't voice their First Amendment right to talk about a stolen election or to talk, you know, what, what, you know, or to I mean, people are screaming about this today as we speak, Jamal. The First Amendment issue is probably among the hottest issues as we ramp up to the midterm elections among among many things. And there's a lot of discussion about it. That's why this particular documentary and this discussion and this carving out, if you will, of the First Amendment protection, everything is, you know, you know the wide expanse of uh, First Amendment protections. There's this little exception, this little carve out for Palestine. You can, you can advocate, you can speak about political beliefs, except when it comes to Palestine. That's the that's the Palestine exception. That's the carve out, Jamal. And I and I do believe it will go to the Supreme Court. So it'll be interesting because the Supreme Court is this very conservative court, which, you know, really wants to protect uh, First Amendment rights. So it'll be really, really, really interesting to see what happens at the level of the Supreme Court. The acronym, uh, Jess, is PEP, progressive, PEP. P- progressive except for Palestine or yeah, on Palestine. Or con- or conservative except for Palestine. <laughs> You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Moving on to this new story. Just, I mean, we've seen this uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict. 
go in all different directions, uh, actually in unimaginable directions, especially uh, when people talk about Europe and World War One and World War Two. that now there is yet another major invasion happening right there in Europe between uh, a major power such as, as Russia trying to gobble up territory of a neighboring uh, country. Uh, we haven't seen something like this happen for a long, long time. I mean, going back to World War II or when uh, the Russians, uh, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, tried to con re consolidate and, 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 and put their hold on certain uh, parts of the former Soviet Union. But uh, now it's again like this is a, a chapter, you know, from World War Two when we bring back Hitler into the equation. All right. of a sudden, like Hitler and and then Nazification and denazification are becoming like common standard Buzz language. Yeah. Yes, and and so if people are not aware of the story, but there is an outrage, especially in Israel and other countries, over Sergei. Lavrov's uh, claim uh, that Hitler was part Jewish, and this has uh, happened when he was asked, and, and you're right, by an, an Italian uh, uh, media, I mean, I mean, Italian, I guess, journalist, who he was asked how Russia could claim it was fighting a D, fighting to denazify Ukraine, and then, and then he answered uh, the clarification made his remarks so this is uh, by the italian tv program called zona bianca this happened on on sunday and this is after uh, the commemoration of the holocaust uh, holocaust right. rem remember uh, remembrance day and, uh, and then and then when he was asked he said uh, and i'm quoting here mr lavrov's uh, quote and he said i could be wrong but Hitler also had Jewish blood, and between bracket, he's hinting to, between quotes, he's hinting to Zelensky is Jewish, uh, and 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 he said, you know, uh, I could be wrong, but Hitler also had Jewish blood means absolutely nothing. Why Jewish people say that the most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jews? It's quite a mouthful to say. It's really a stupid thing to say and it only adds to the kind of craziness of the narrative that russia and putin are engaged with right now now irrespective of the truth value let's say i mean we we can go down that rabbit hole and and kind of talk about i mean what he's referring to jamal is one of hitler's grandfathers where there, there it, there's unknown uh there it's unknown whether or not he there was any connection to one of his grandfathers to being Jewish. I mean, it's, it's kind of a crazy theory. It's never been confirmed. Let's be clear about it. But for Lavrov to use that at this point, when pretty much the entirety of the world has turned against Russia, minus you know, a couple of satellite countries you know, close to Russia, it's kind of a crazy thing to say. And I'm not sure, maybe you can uh, offer some analysis into this, Jamal, why? In the midst of everything that's going on right now, which you know we'll we'll break down in a minute, why would Sergei Lavrov want to even say something like that? Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Just one, of course, uh, Putin. Starting with Putin and and Russian media, they have been basically marketing the idea that they're there to not to denazify right. Ukraine. 
And this is, again, another debatable topic. And, and there are in, in Ukraine white supremacists and so forth. But there are also, they do There's, exist in the United States and in Russia. But that's, 100%. But that's one of, of the uh, talking points that they keep throwing out there. And, and, and if you recall, and we, we discussed this, Israel has been tiptoeing uh, for uh, the past uh, several weeks, uh, now changing its attitude about not uh, criticizing Putin, not siding with Ukraine, trying to play this new, because they've had uh, a good relationship with Putin. And there is also, we talked about the oligarchs that also right. are Israeli citizens. They are Russian and Israeli citizens and Ukrainian and uh, and uh, uh, Israeli citizens, as well as uh, a, a sizable Jewish population in both Russia and, and Ukraine. And then, of course, Zelensky is Jewish himself. So they've been trying to kind of like stay in the middle. And, and lastly, a, a large population, large number of uh, immigrants uh, in Israel uh, and settlers in particular are from the former Soviet Union. And many exactly. of them are from Russia. So exactly. even those, those, they were, there's actually a split action because although you saw in the Israeli media sometimes showing that some demonstrations in Tel Aviv, and this is Tel Aviv, we should say it's a progressive hub in, in Israel supporting the Ukraine, there is a, also a sizable majority of Russian immigrants who support Russia. Putin and, and Russia, absolutely. And, and, and Putin. Until, I would say, Sunday, until with this statement here, because uh, before that also there was a shift, you know, uh, that Israel now started to make. And, you know, if you remember, just uh, Biden and uh, the Secretary of State, uh, they were very frustrated by the Israeli prime minister for not supporting right. the sanctions and the boycott and making strong statements. Instead, uh, Bennett was playing like, again, like he went like, I'm going to meet with Putin, I'm going to be the peacemaker and, 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 and so forth. And then just just within the past three weeks, there has been a major a shift. shift. Right. And, and so I think this is out of frustration. He's saying that when he's asked this. And I think it's just a, a straightforward jab at Zelensky and at Israel at the same time. I think that's a really good analysis, Jamal. And uh, I, I think we need to restate the rather obvious point that there are white supremacists and Nazi sympathizers everywhere in the world right now. So, you know, here in the United States, ironically, there are Nazi sympathizers in the apartheid regime in Israel itself, you know, who support Putin and have supported Putin and white supremacy. We know that. And um, so I, I think your analysis makes a lot of sense. And it's it's kind of ill-timed and not very helpful for the, the, the Russian kind of narrative right now, because, you know, the reality is that, you know, this is a big global kind of engagement right now. And I want to transition this a little bit to our discussion of the ugly, painful truth that no one has wanted to talk about. We've talked about it, but it seems like the media and the rest of the world is getting on it. This is not Russia versus Ukraine. This is a NATO, US-backed, maybe even G20 or G7 proxy war. Ukraine has become a proxy 
for all these other interests. And if that's the case, Jamal, if you have all these NATO weapons coming into Ukraine and supporting, you know, the Ukrainian effort and and going after Russia and killing Russian, uh, uh, you know, uh, military personnel, what what's that going to do to the conflict? Is that going to cool it down? Or is that just going to escalate it? We know the answer. It's obviously going to escalate it. it yeah, it's going to escalate it. And that's what we've been talking about for the past several weeks, when many people thought that this is going to end in a week or two or, or a month. And as, as we've said, this keeps taking different directions and, and, and it, they, it keeps getting escalated. And now, and this is a segue to our next topic, just is that the United States or the Biden administration has asked Congress uh, uh, this past uh, Thursday for another $33 billion, billion with a B. in funding. And for people to think about that, okay, our largest recipients in, for the United States um, are uh, Israel and, and Egypt, uh, maybe Jordan after that or something like this. But Israel receives close to $4 billion per year. Egypt receives $2 billion per year approximately. So let's say for, so this is $33 billion. Wow. This is this is uh, f- equivalent to eight years of, of uh of USA to Israel, uh, or you know, ten years plus, or um, thirteen right. years plus of USA to Egypt, which who that two countries major allies. So this is if approved, which seems to be going to be approved. It's it's crazy at at the time um, you know when the United States is suffering economically, uh, as you can see for many Americans, uh, even though, um, you know, there's a lot of work, but the stock market has been tanking, the interest rates today were raised. And so mortgage rates are going to hit over over, over 5% for the very first time in in many years. There is debate in in Congress, uh, just imagine, it's forcing um, uh, the Biden administration not to cancel student uh, loans, which I think are more important for these students who graduate from universities uh, drowning in, in debt. And now we, we are willing to, I would say, print more money, more billions yes. of dollars to give to Ukraine. Yeah, that's a really good analysis, Jamal. And and. And I want to push your analysis, which I think is really, really good, into this area of what messaging does that send to Putin in Russia? Again, what whose war is this? This is no longer, and I'm sorry I keep repeating it, because if the war is expanded, if we're giving Ukraine $33 billion and weapons, and now if you look at the $33 billion request, Jamal, it's, it's going from defensive weapons to offensive weapons. And when you go from defense to offense, uh, you can no longer claim uh, any kind of neutrality. It's hard to claim that the United States was a neutral, a neutral player in this. But Russia's kind of interpretation of this being a proxy war makes more and more sense. And as you and I have talked about for many weeks now, this increases the possibility of an expanded war above and beyond the borders of Ukraine. It means all of the other uh, um, neighboring NATO countries, uh, you know, Moldova, Poland, um, you know, 
there, there's a lot of anxiety in Europe right now, as there should be, because if we're sending that much weaponry, the, the Russians are just going to say, this is no longer just Ukraine. This is a larger war against NATO. And uh, Russia in the last 48 hours, Jamal, just said that uh, these weapons are targets now. And the, the convoys bringing the weapons into Ukraine are legitimate targets now. So I think it's just going to escalate. So when do we move from this definition? Because the Biden administration tries to sell it that, you know, we're not going to send U.S. troops, but we will send the most lethal weapons just to actually also uh, maybe uh, draw on on a poll, a recent uh, recent poll uh, that has been published. Seventy two percent oppose in the United States, 72 percent oppose the U.S. taking direct military action against Russian forces while 21%. So they, so the vast majority of Americans don't want to get involved in a, in a military fashion. But when you give like $33 billion and you give uh, missiles to target Russian uh, uh, warplanes, uh, you know, when do we cross that line for the but Russians I've... to say, you are directly now involved? No, the line has been crossed. And just today, Adam Kinzinger, who is a Republican congressman, uh, is putting together a bill for the Congress to basically give President Biden the authorization to send troops. He wants to do an a, uh, AUMF, authorization to use military force. And in that authorization to use military force, he wants to give President Biden the ability to decide if necessary to send uh, you know, combat troops to the region. So I don't know what you think. I, I, I'm going to say that the line is already crossed. Uh, I believe that this is no longer a war between Ukraine and Russia. I think it's a larger proxy war. And I think that it's, you know, and I've been saying this for weeks now and weeks and weeks, it's going to get much uglier because, again, we continue to hear about the heroic resistance by Ukrainians, which in fact is true. But we're also missing this larger picture that, you know, uh, the eastern portion of Ukraine and the southern part of Ukraine, like Odessa, up to the, you know, Donetsk region, these, you know, the, Russia is there. Maybe they're not going as fast as they would like to, but they are they are completely entrenched in Ukraine right now. So for anybody to say that the Russians are losing right now, it's not an accurate analysis for anybody to think that the that the Ukrainian armed forces are are able to withstand this. Don't have a good idea of what's going on right now. So that's part of the irresponsible reporting. It's also part of you know you know to answer your question directly, the line has been crossed. In my humble opinion, the other component, Jess, and that really actually worries me quite a bit. And I don't know if people have been paying attention to it. But what is the second uh, worry or uh, for for the American publics now as supposedly? And I, I'm not. I know you don't like to use that. That we are coming out of uh, the pandemic maybe we aren't but that was we're not the, well let's we'll say that's why i said the second most the second most it's the important, use of nuclear weapons right w no it's it's inflation 
Oh, you inflation. Know, yeah, pe- okay. People are feeling yeah. it in the in in their pockets. You know, inflation. Yeah, yeah. People who want to refinance their homes. People who are on the verge of buying a new they a new home. When when people were getting homes at two and a half percent finance, now they have to pay three times as much or two and a half times as much today. And you know, when you crunch the numbers, a lot of people it's are lot going of money. to be left out, especially in in the Bay Area with the price of homes. So that's the sec- and and so. You know what kind of like struck me uh, watching uh, Biden talking about it as he basically is preparing uh, the country just to the financial pain because now, you know, Americans vote with their wallets, right? So the election is going to be coming. So he's trying to deflect on on this big issue here and in, and he's uh, basically trying to deflect from the financial pain stemming from the crisis uh, in the Ukraine blaming it on on Putin and and citing he said Putin's price hike I don't know if people how many people heard that sentence Putin's price hike we all heard it and he says it whenever he speaks of higher it. prices at the gas pump and I'm quoting here the cost of this fight is not cheap but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. This is what he said uh, when he announced actually uh, aid to the Ukraine. We either back the Ukrainian people as they defend their country or we stand by the Russians, continue their atrocities. I mean, this is just basically saying we're going to suffer economically here you're going to pay more for gasoline you're going to pay more for bread you're going to pay more for your rent and mortgages and blame it on putin don't blame it on on us well, taking the decision. I, I i want to add something else to the mix jamal and i would like to ask uh president biden is he going to stand as strong when china and xi jinping invade taiwan because that's you know, that's lurking around the corner because Taiwan is very nervous about a similar invasion and occupation by by China. Let's see, because, you know, uh, there have been a number of high-level delegations going to Taiwan saying how much the United States supports Taiwan and their independence. So what's going to happen there? Are we going to, uh, what are we going to do in relation to China? There's already this global kind of slowdown in part because of the war, in part because of COVID, which is out of control in China, Jamal. And then, you know, what about all the other places that have occupations and people resisting, whether it's Kashmir, whether it's Palestine, whether it's Burma, um, Myanmar, Myanmar. So what happened that we shouldn't be policing the world? You know, every president well, comes and said we shouldn't be policing. Yeah, or the- what about the hypocrisy about some some occupations are worth, you know, supporting and some are worth resisting and we'll throw down here but not throw down there. I think we're headed, Jamal, quite frankly, when I look about, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, we're headed for some really difficult times because Biden decided to go all in. And we'll expand on this in the coming weeks, uh, Jess. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. Go to our website arabtalkradio.com to download the latest shows and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.